before you turn to Haggai or before you try to find Haggai in your Bible, um, it's going to be the third book from the end of the Old Testament, if that helps you. Um, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 6, because that's actually where we're going to start this morning. So Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 30, and then we'll jump to Haggai chapter 1, starting in verse 1. So Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 30. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start by reading this. I know this is a little bit differently than we normally do it. But I want the words of Jesus to ring in our ears as we study Haggai chapter 1. And hopefully, if you've been with us for a while, Matthew 6, 30 through 33 will, will remind you of the sermon series that we left before Hosea when we walked through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is... This comes from Jesus' famous teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that um, when we worry about what to wear, we need to look to the flowers of the field. And, we, and when we worry about um, what we're going to eat and where we're going to live, we need to look at the birds of the air because God provides for them and he cares much more about us than he does flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow and birds that have a, a shorter lifespan And so Jesus finishes that teaching with verses 30 through 33 in Matthew 6 when he says this, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. One of the saddest things that you will hear about adopted children, especially those that are adopted from about age three and up, is that they will hoard food. They hoard food because they come into this home that all of a sudden has all of the food they could ever need or want, and they, they don't know what to do with that. And so you'll hear stories of older brothers and sisters waiting until their younger siblings eat before they take a bite. You'll hear of, of children who have lived in their adopted homes for five to seven years, and they're still taking peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and sticking them between their mattress and box spring because they're afraid the food won't be there tomorrow. What these children do is, is it's not bad. It's, it's a product of their fear. It's a product of the fact that they've come out of unstable homes that did not take care of their needs. I want to be very careful with that sermon illustration because as I apply it to us as the people of God, we go from a situation that isn't sinful because it's not those kids' fault to a situation where it is sinful, all right? Because we... Know that our God provides. We know it from our history. We know it from the history of God's people. 
We know that God takes care of those who call on his name for salvation. Doesn't mean that they live extravagant lives, right? But it does mean that God provides for them. And yet, God's people have always tended to hoard what he gives them. This is our... This is our, our problem, but, but also our big ideas as we begin this morning. That God provides all that we need and we hoard anyways. God provides all that we need and we hoard anyways. I, I think two of the best places to go to to remind ourselves of this is when Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt And as they begin their journey to the promised land, God provides for them food. He provides it in manna and in quail. But if you remember back to the instructions to Moses, God says, gather only what you can eat in a day. Don't gather too much. Because whatever you gather and you don't eat, it will grow moldy overnight and it will not be good the next morning. Now, he does allow them to gather more than they need on Friday heading into the Sabbath. Because why? Because they're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. But God wanted the people of Israel to trust him that he would provide for their needs every day. There's there's echoes of that in Jesus' prayer. Give us our what? Our daily bread. Right? And then you think of one of the parables that Jesus gives. He reminds his disciples and the Pharisees and those that were following him that it is unwise for a man to have a barn full of all that he needs and for him to have more than that and to say to himself, you know what, I'm going to build more barns, right? There is nothing wrong. John Wesley who if you have any connection to Methodism or the Methodist church, right? maybe you grew up in it, maybe you know family that are in it. John Wesley was the one who started the Methodist church. He has this great quote where he calls Christians to earn as much as you can, to save as much as you can, and to give as much as you can. Those are all biblical concepts. It is a good and biblical thing to work hard and to, to receive wages for your work. It is a good and biblical thing to save for the future. But it is also a good and biblical thing to give away as much as you can. And the problem, you can probably already feel me leaning into it. Um, The problem with this text in Haggai is that we're automatically going to go to money. But the point isn't money. The point of this passage and the entirety of this book as we walk through it over the next five weeks is that God demands everything from us. He doesn't just demand our money. He demands our talent. He demands our time. He is calling us to give up everything that we have to him. To not hoard anything away from him. So there are two things that we need to know before we jump into the text. The first is is the discussion of the temple. 
you have to remember that in the Old Testament, the temple was where God met with his people. The temple was an important part of Israel's life. Before they had the temple, they had the tabernacle, right? Which was this long, elaborate tent that they would set up as they were camping. And they would go in there to meet with the Lord. But the temple in the New Testament changes because of what Jesus did. Because of his life, death, and resurrection. Because of the fact that the veil in the temple was torn. Because of the coming of the Holy Spirit and indwelling all of those who believe. The temple is not some grand building and some central location that we all go to to worship God. Rather, as we read in Ephesians 2 and as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians Our bodies become the temple. And when we gather together as the people of God, as the church, that is the temple. This building is not a temple. Do not think that there is anything extra spiritual about this building. There is meaning to it, right? Because this is where we gather together. This is where we have seen people baptized and married and children dedicated to the Lord. There is a sacredness in this space, but it's not the building itself. What gives meaning to this is what God has done among his people. I tell my kids all the time, don't call this the church. Right? Like, don't say that daddy's going to the church. You can say he's going to the church building, but if it's just me here, this isn't the church. The church doesn't get here until we gather together. All right? So, so as we're talking about the temple, go away from a building and think about the people of God gathered together. Now, the other thing that we have to know and deal with before we jump into the text is where we are in the history of Israel. Israel has already been divided into the two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel has already, been, has already gone in exile to Assyria and has not come back. The kingdom of Judah has been exiled into Babylon. And then the Babylons are overtaken by the Persians. And the king of Persia, the one who goes into Babylon as the victorious king, is a man named Cyrus. And Cyrus is a special fellow. He is well-equipped when it comes to, to battle. He is a smart general. But, he, but he's an even more wise ruler. And Cyrus knows that happy people don't fight. Happy people tend to plant their crops build their businesses, and go about their days. And so what Cyrus does is he goes, he he sets the vision for the Greeks and the Romans who will follow. When Cyrus takes over a country, he says, look, you are free to worship whoever you want to worship. You are free to conduct your business and build your farms, but your taxes will come to me and my army will be over you. And most people said, okay, sounds like a good deal. And this is why Cyrus sends Nehemiah and Ezra and a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city 
and to rebuild the temple. In fact, Cyrus gives his own money. You'll read about this in Nehemiah and in Ezra. He gives his own money to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Why? It's not because he believes in God. There may be some of that, right? When you read Nehemiah and Ezra, it looks like God is working on Cyrus's heart. But his first motivation is, I want the people of Israel to be happy and to pay their taxes to me, so I'm going to help them out. And so this is where we are in the history of Israel. David and, and um, Solomon, all of those folks are long gone. The, the, the people of Israel have already been taken away. The people of Judah have already been taken away. And the people of Judah have returned and are trying to rebuild Jerusalem. And so it's with this in mind that we jump into Haggai chapter 1 starting in verse 1. And here's what we are told. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So on top of all of the fun names to, to pronounce there, there are a couple important things that we need to establish before we move on to the second verse. The first one is this. Cyrus has died, okay? And after Cyrus dies, there's an uprising in the kingdom. There are some men who want to become the rulers of Persia. And they do this while Cyrus's son, the rightful heir to the throne, a man named Cambyses, is off fighting in wars. And so Cambyses hears about this. He turns his army around. He heads back to Persia to defeat the usurpers. And Cambyses falls off his horse, lands on his head, and dies. So now the people of Persia are without a king. So the question is, what happens? Well, Darius is Cambyses' sword bearer. In the Persian culture, a sword bearer was the right-hand man of the king. So he would have been the top general of the Persian army. And so Darius decides to go back and to avenge the honor of both Cyrus and Cambyses. He defeats the rebels and the people of Persia make him king. And Darius looks around at this great Persian empire and he says, you know what? Cyrus was wise. There was, there was some good ideas in that skull of that man. And so he continues to do what Cyrus did. He continues to help different peoples set up their towns, strengthen their economies, and serve their gods. So Darius is happy to allow Israel to continue do with doing what they're doing. Now we need to know that Zerubbabel is the governor. He is the one who will act like the regional king among the people in Jerusalem. Zerubbabel is important for a couple of reasons. One, he's in the line of David. But two, he's in the genealogy of Jesus. If you go back to Matthew 1, you will find Zerubbabel in those last 14 folks in the line of Jesus, Zerubbabel and his rule should already point us, because it would point the Israelites to the reality of the Messiah to come. The second thing that we need to note is that Haggai is not ministering alone. 
right? He's, he's ministering with Zechariah, who's another prophet. His book follows Haggai, and so it's, it's an important uh, collection of sermons that Zechariah gave to encourage them to continue the work. Both Haggai and Zechariah are mentioned in Ezra chapter 6. And what's happening here in this book of Haggai is that Haggai is going to preach four different sermons. And so today we're going to look at the first part of that sermon. And Haggai is going to serve in his prophetic role and call the priest, Joshua, and the governor or king, Zerubbabel, to lead the people to do what they're supposed to do. And friends, I want to, to one more nerdy theology thing before we move on, but I don't think it's nerdy. I think it's important. It's why I want to give it to you. The three most important people in Israel in the Old Testament were the king, the priest, and the prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of all three of those offices. He is a prophet who speaks for God because he is God. He is a priest, right? The whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is our priest who stands on the cross as our sacrifice. And he's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the one that the people of Israel and the Gentiles are looking forward to. So don't miss this reminder of the offices of the people of Israel as it points us to our Savior. So the author of the book sort of sets up the situation for us in verse 1. In verse 2, we're told this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Now, Haggai uses Lord of hosts 14 times in his book. The idea of the Lord of hosts is used throughout the Old Testament. And this doesn't mean that this is a God of hospitality who throws nice parties in his home. The Lord of hosts carries with it this idea of God being the God of the angels and the army of angels that sit up in heaven. That God is the absolute ruler of the universe. He is the one who rules the stars, he rules the ocean, and he rules every king and every kingdom that exists. And so Haggai reminds them of God's sovereignty when he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. And then he reminds the people that this isn't God's desire to not rebuild the temple, it is theirs. They are the ones who have decided that it is not the right time to put the effort and the time and the money into rebuilding the house of God. They would rather put those things to something else. So we go to verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? A couple key phrases here. The word of the Lord reminds us that this is literally God's speech to his people. This reminds us of how precious the words of the Lord are. 
And they are spoken by who? By Haggai the prophet. We already know he's a prophet. That was established in verse one. Why use that phrase again? To remind the people that are reading this that he is God's mouthpiece. He is the one who is delivering the message of God. This isn't Haggai being an old curmudgeon. This isn't Haggai trying to be a burr in the saddle of the people of God. This is God speaking to his people through his prophet. Friends, this is a good reminder that the word of the Lord is precious. It's precious when it encourages us and builds us up, and it's precious to us when it steps on our toes. Friends, it is a good thing when God's word serves as a pebble in our shoe. He is calling his people to repent here. And he does it with humor. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? We're not exactly sure what this means, that this paneled houses. It it could mean that that they had had enough time to work on their homes, that they didn't just have a a crude roof, but they were able to put panels on their roofs to, to help the water run down a little bit easier. Or it could mean that they had enough time that their roofs Their roofs were okay, and they were actually putting wood panel up on their walls. But whatever it was, this was an elaborate expense. This was something that they didn't need, but they were going after. Man, if that doesn't strike to my heart, right? Going after things that we don't need. The house of God, the temple, was in ruin. Because when when God sent the Babylonians to Jerusalem, not only did they burn down the walls, not only did they tear down the homes, but they burnt the temple down. They destroyed it. They went into the temple. And listen, friends, there was the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, but there were also riches in the temple. From the time that the people of Israel had left Egypt up until the time that the Babylonians showed up in Jerusalem, all of the money that, that was given to the temple was stored in that building. And the people of Babylon, the armies of Babylon, walked in, destroyed it, and stole it all. And so... This isn't just a worn down and rough edged temple. It is a non-existent building. It is literally in ruins. And as they are looking at the gathering place of the people of God in ruins, they are putting panels on their houses. Do you feel this? Do you understand why God would be upset? And so in verse 5, Haggai says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, again, the king of the universe, consider your ways. Let those three words lay heavy on you. Haggai is going to say this multiple times in his sermons. Consider your ways. Remind yourself of who God is. That he is the creator of the universe. 
the one who spoke all of the world into existence. He is the one who sustains life on earth. He sends rains when they're needed. He sends the sun when it's needed. He is the one that protects Israel. He is the one who has saved them again and again and again from from the time of Abraham and his sinfulness with Pharaoh, right? She's not my wife, she's my sister. You remember that? To the idiocy of Jacob and his lies and deceit where Esau had every right to plunge his sword deep into his heart and instead he embraced his brother. From the time of Moses and Aaron escaping Egypt, escaping the wrath of God multiple times in the desert, to those moments in the Judges and, and First and Second Samuel when, when Israel was literally this small band of, of wandering people who God built into a great nation. And then they sin against God. They go into exile and God saves them again and brings them back. Again and again and again, God proves his faithfulness and this is how they respond. The one who has saved them and provided for them, they respond with hoarding. God, it is mine. They are using their talent and their time and their money on themselves. God, through Haggai, goes straight to their heart in verse 6. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Now, there are two ways to interpret this verse. There are different ways of interpretation if you read through the commentaries. One One of the ways to interpret this is that they do so and they don't get much back. Um, They have very little to eat and very little to drink and the clothes that they put on them are tattered tattered and with holes and that, um, you know, when they make money, they lose it quickly. Uh, I don't think that's the right interpretation. They have enough money to put panels on their houses. I think what Haggai is saying here is, look, You go to work and you're successful, but you don't think that it's enough. You have food to fill your bellies, but you don't think it's enough. You have drink to satisfy your thirst, but you don't think it's enough. You put clothes on, but they're not enough. You make money and you throw it everywhere and you think it's not enough. God is going straight to their heart and saying, you waste things because you're looking for happiness in them and not in me. This is what Jeremiah talks about when he prophesies to the people of God. And he says, you run after broken cisterns. You try to fill yourself up from wells that are broken and cracked and muddy and dirty And and I am offering you the real, true, living water. But you don't come to me. 
I think two passages of the Bible to keep in mind here are Matthew 6, 30 through 33, that we need to seek first the king and his kingdom and not stuff. And the second one is Proverbs 25, 16, where wisdom is given us that if you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. All right, not to get too crude this morning, but the reality of, of the proverb is, is it's dripping here in Haggai 1, 1 through 6. The Lord has gifted you, people of God. He has provided for you and taken care of you, and you can't get enough of it. You just want to fill and fill and fill and fill to the point of vomiting. Let's read verse 33 of Matthew 6 one more time. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Friends, Haggai is calling the returning Israelites, and he's calling us to seek the king and the kingdom, to know that God is the one who provides that we don't need to hoard things because he will take care of us. He will provide like he has provided. He will provide like he is providing now. And he especially will provide as he's promised he will. Friends, the grace of yesterday and today are good, but the saving grace is found in the grace of tomorrow knowing that God will continue to work on behalf of his people. So what do we do with these six verses? So we're halfway through the first sermon. We'll finish it uh, next Sunday. But what, what do we do here? As we're stopping here, how do we respond? I think the first thing we do is we need to be thankful that God provides. As we celebrate the birth of our nation, as, as we celebrate the goodness that God has shown upon his people, let us be thankful for his provision. Continue to live a life of thanks because of what God has done. But let us also, and this is probably the harder one, be thankful that God pushes back. And what I mean by this is, is we need God and his word to get into our hearts and cut out the sinful parts. We need God to push back on us a little bit, especially in the good times when provision is good, when we feel joyful. It is so easy to wander away from the Lord because of the good gifts that he gives us. So let's thank God that he pushes back on us. He uses his word to remind us that these things are not enough. Ultimately, we need him. Let us rejoice that God gave all of Jesus. Let us rejoice that God gave all of Jesus. Friends, all of this is grounded in the gospel. Paul calls us to be living sacrifices in Romans 12.1 because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Because of the truth that Jesus lived the perfectly obedient life that we could not live, that he died the death that we deserved with all of God's wrath and all of God's judgment, 
poured out on him because of the fact that he came back to life three days later, we can rejoice and rest in the good news of Christ. And we can rejoice in the fact that there is nothing about Jesus that God held back. And that we are promised to be heirs of the Son. That everything that Jesus inherits, we inherit too. (coughs) So why in the world would we be satisfied with paneled houses when through Christ we have the universe? Seek first the king and his kingdom. Seek first the righteousness that comes from Christ. And then all these other things will be added unto you. Final way to apply this. Give up everything for the king and his kingdom. Give up everything for the king and his kingdom. Friends, your church needs you. The the village of Hatch and the Hatch Valley and the Uvas Valley, they need you. Use your talents. Use the ways that God has gifted you to serve your church and your community. Give of your time. And listen, I know this is probably the wrong time to preach the sermon, right? It's the summertime, and we are an agrarian society. But give up your time for the king and his kingdom. And finally, friends, your money. Don't treat money like the end all and be all. Don't make money your God. Jesus reminded us often, we can't serve God and money. We serve God by using our money for his glory and the good of others. We take care of our families. We pay our bills. We we rejoice in the blessing of the Lord. And we sacrificially give to make a difference for the kingdom. This this message from Haggai reminds me of when President Kennedy said, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And as much as I love the United States, it is nothing compared to the kingdom of God. God has called us to sacrifice greatly for his fame and for his people. The question we have to ask ourselves is how are we going to respond? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for, we thank you, we're thankful for your provision and, and for um, the way that you have have taken care of your people and, and have promised to continue to take care of your people. God, we, we ask that, um, that as we respond through the, the taking of the Lord's Supper, that you would, you would just reveal your goodness to us and, and, and show, us, um, show us your glory. Father, draw unbelieving hearts to belief in you. Draw those of us that are, that are bent towards the wrong things and, and bring us back to you. Father, do great things for your glory and for your church's good. 
And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to... I meant to talk to you before we did this, and so I apologize. Um, what, what I'm going to have us do today is I'm going to have us sing to kind of prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and also, and, and I, I think this is the important reason, um, I'm going to go grab the kids so that they can hear and watch and experience, Okay. Um, and, and, and I think uh, sometimes we get a little disconnected from the kids because they're down there and we're up here. Um, so, so I'm going to ask of you uh, to stand and sing and to, 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 to prepare your hearts to take the supper. I'm going to go grab the kids and bring them up here, and, and then we'll, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Okay, so can we do that? And again, lo siento. Um, so, 